Podcast family, of course, we strive to be evidence-based and evidence-driven in everything that we do. That's the way that we should do it. Anecdotal medicine really is not very scientific or proven of as a process at all. Yet it's amazing that sometimes despite our move to be evidence-based, we all do things that really is not based on the evidence at all. It just kind of sounds reasonable and it's kind of good practice. Yeah, the vast majority of the time, evidence-based and good clinical practice go in the same direction. But sometimes they don't. And I'm going to explain that in this episode. We're going to focus on two super common occurrences that happen, well, at least once a week. And, and our response to them and how it sounds good, how it sounds um, helpful, but there's really not a lot of data for. The first has to do with the treatment of asymptomatic bacteria. So before I tell you what the second situation is, let me tell you how this situation, this scenario came out. The other day I was in the OB prenatal clinic, and of course I got a checkout, and the resident said, hey, this uh, patient's doing well. She had ASB, asymptomatic bacteria, on her initial screen, and she said she took her oral antibiotics, um, so she's done, and now we're going to do a urine uh, test of cure. So, of course, my answer was, wait, wait, do we really have to get a urine test of cure? And after the resident looked stunned and shook that off, said, well, of course we do. And so then I answered again, uh, of course we do. <laughs> like, absolutely. And, and then I asked, well, why do we do that? And the answer seemed reasonable in reply. It was, well, to make sure the infection is gone. Absolutely right. However, even though that sounds like great clinical practice, and it's very reasonable to do, and I'm all for it, by the way, don't get me wrong, there really is no evidence for that. And as a matter of fact, there's some professional guidance that says probably doesn't make any difference at all. Yep, we're going to talk about that very scenario in this episode. And we're going to use ACOG's recent clinical consensus, which is number four from August 2023, to go over some of that info. And then I'm going to tell you about the second scenario. That second scenario, which I'm asked about at least once a week, has to do with any specific physical exercises or specific yoga style poses that can help the baby descend into the pelvis quicker and or bring on uh, the natural onset of labor, okay, prevent induction, or if it can even be done during labor uh, to help not only with pain control, but also to help speed labor. Specifically, I'm going to talk about something like yoga poses and what's called the miles circuit. Okay. Now, if those in midwifery have totally learned that, or I think they should have, because uh, it's very well uh, promoted in, in circles of, of nurse midwifery, uh, and not so much in conventional uh, OBGYN lectures. Uh, but there's three sets of exercises called the Miles Circuit that has gotten a lot of, of social media attention. Well, is there data for that? Well, once again, yes and no, and I'm going to explain in this episode. That's why I titled this episode, No Data, No Problem, <laughs> because these are two scenarios where even though the data looks a little gray and may not be solid, they sound totally reasonable. There's little to no harm in doing it, and it can only help clinical outcomes. So we're going to get into these things about ASB and specific yoga style poses and exercises and the miles circuit to see if that can actually help bring the patient to natural labor or not. So no data, no problem. Let's get into that now. 
just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves really fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So, so interesting. For all that we walk around the hallways saying, I'm evidence-based. I read the journal. Who walks around like that? Nobody, right? If they do, yeah, they're kind of weird. I mean, we'll be evidence-based, but don't be weird about it. I mean, just know your data, be normal, have good patient EQ, and do a good job. That's about it. Um, But as much as we fight for that and, and to stand for the data, it's weird how... Things sound like they should work. It, it, it makes common sense. Um, it's low risk. And, and yet the data may not be there to support some of these recommendations or things that we do uh, out of conservatism for the patient benefit. Uh, and the first situation scenario that we're going to address, this whole issue of, of test of cure after ASB or test of cure of the year and even after cystitis for that matter, it's the same thing. Um, sounds reasonable. I mean, isn't it our job? The whole reason we gave the antibiotic is to to get rid of the infection. Well, then how do we know if the infection is gone? That's with a repeat urine culture. That to me sounds absolutely reasonable and it sounds conservative and it sounds like it's something that should be done. But does the data support that? So, uh, and again, I have to be clear here that just because we don't have the data just because we don't have the clinical trial that has actually proven without a doubt that we should do X, Y, or Z, I'm still making the case that with that lack of data, it's very reasonable to do. Now, that's super controversial. Now, I want to make this very clear here. There are leaders in obstetrics and MFM who say, hey, if I treated a patient for ASB and she took her antibiotics, She's good. I'm, it is what it is because um, we, we even if we find that there's a repeat uh, ASB episode at, at that test of cure, there's no data that she's going to be any better uh, after that initial treatment. Now, we all know that that initial treatment is valid. So let's let's make the argument very clear here. They need to be treated for ASB at least at that initial encounter when it's found, ideally at the start of prenatal care, because untreated ASB anywhere from 20 to 30% of the time will progress and ascend because of the normal changes to anatomy and physiology in pregnancy to not just frank cystitis, but upper tract infection, pyelonephritis, which of course with its systemic issues brings a a slew of other problems, including preterm birth. So it's very clear that treatment of ASB at the initial onset, when they first come in, or when you first get your your OB labs and include that urine culture, ASB absolutely should be treated. So no one is arguing not to treat ASB. Everybody agrees to treat it. The controversy comes in with, do we need to prove now that we have successfully eradicated what we found? Now, as ASB is known to lead to complications that we just discussed, including low birth weight, preterm birth, and of course, ascending infection, doesn't it just make sense 
uh, and it's like good clinical conservative practice to do a repeat urine culture anywhere from one or two weeks after that is done to make sure that it's that it's been eradicated. After all, the reason we gave her antibiotics is to try to prevent those issues. Absolutely reasonable. And also absolutely no data. Is that wild or what? Now, if, if you are already thinking, man, what are you talking about? Of course there's data on it. That's why we do it. No, we do it basically out of tradition. Now, there was that initial trial that showed that women who were treated with ASB um, ended up having a decreased risk of pilo. Okay, now we know that, but that was that wasn't necessarily with repeat urine cultures. Sometimes they were done with repeat UAs, so even that was kind of unclear. Okay, so uh, let me just I want to say this correctly because I don't want to get any slack from anybody. I am not saying that we should not treat asymptomatic bacteria in pregnancy. That is absolutely not what I'm saying. ASB needs to be treated. Now, when you get that urine culture. Whether it's at the start of prenatal care, which is what is recommended by the college, by ACOG, or just get it at some point during the process, that's fine. But you do need to get it. And if you find ASB, which we're going to define here, what what actually makes that uh, an asymptomatic bacteria uh, by colony count, um, you got to get that treated. The controversy is, do we need to check it afterwards? All right. And even when we get the urine culture, it is super controversial. Because traditionally, as I just mentioned, ACOG says do it at the beginning so you can head off problems, ward them off, right? You burn the sage with your prophylactic antibiotics so they don't go into ascending infection and preterm labor. However, there's other data that show that most ASB actually happens later on in pregnancy, like in the end of the second towards the third trimester. So if you check early, um, they can develop ASB later on. So you see how controversial it is? A lot of stuff. That's why we call this no data, no problem. (laughs) So let me just beat you to the punch here. I absolutely think it's reasonable. I am in favor of rechecking a urine culture after either ASB in pregnancy or acute cystitis in pregnancy to make sure it's gone. Uh, And I'm also perfectly okay with the fact of what I'm about to say. uh, uh, I'm okay with that. I sleep very well at night knowing that the data is not there. That just because I did a urine culture afterwards as test of cure does not mean that they are any safer than if I didn't. And I'm okay with that. And so if, if that's to you, you're like, wait a minute. Well, how are you doing that, Chop? I mean, aren't you uh, like conflicting with evidence-based practice? No, because there is no evidence. There's no evidence one way or the other. And that's what I'm trying to say here. Sometimes we do things out of conservatism, out of good clinical judgment, even though we don't have data. And I'm going to read you the statements right out of the college because it's very clear there is no data. And I also like what uh, Creog's, uh, how the Creog's uh, manuscript reads uh, for teaching medical students uh, and residents. And I'm going to read that to you uh, here in a minute. So this is our first scenario. Do we do a test of cure or do you do a test of cure after ASB treatment or cystitis in pregnancy? Um, We do. I'm okay with that. Knowing again, remember our basic premise that we've discussed many times in this episode, here's here's what it is. If it's low risk and it can only help, that checks both boxes to me and I think it's reasonable to do. Before I go on um, and give some of the stats here for the causative agents of ASB and the percentages of the offending uh, agents, the offenders, um, and before we give you the the definition of ASB, because guys, here's the bombshell: none of us are doing it right. 
Yep. I mean, let me just give you a little sneak peek here that according to international guidelines, we're supposed to get two consecutive voided urine samples that show greater than 10 to the fifth colony forming units. That's the diagnostic criteria for ASB. Two of them uh, that have the same organism on both samples. Nobody does that because who's going to come back? Hey, I think you've got bacteria in your urine. Can you come back again and pee so I can really see? Nobody gets two. Maybe you do, and that's great. Uh, keep doing that. But the majority of people, and in common practice, it's, it's, it's once because that's normal. But, yep, the true diagnostic, the formal diagnostic criteria of asymptomatic bacteria. Let me just read it to you right now. This is straight out of APCO, uh, the Association of Professors of Gynecology and Obstetrics and CREOG's uh, residency education. It states, quote, the diagnostic criteria for ASB is isolation of the same bacterial strain greater than or equal to 10 to the 5th colony forming units per ml in two consecutive voided samples or a single catheterized specimen with one bacterial species isolated at a count of greater than 10 to the second. Okay, so 10 to the fifth for voided, 10 to the second uh, for catheterized, or that's the same thing if they are symptomatic for cystitis. Okay, so there's actually two consecutive voided. How many people knew that? So we're not even doing it right there. See, controversial. (laughs) Most people say I get your one urine uh, midstream, and if it's positive, then I'm going to call you ASB. And that's totally reasonable, even though, you see, that's not part of the data. This is the whole purpose of this, of this episode, is just for us to stop and think, wow, sometimes we do stuff that sounds good. It's low risk. Um, it, it, it seems like it can only help. But, but honestly, the data is just not there. So I'm going to give you more info here in just a minute. I'm going to give you the percentage breakdown of E. coli and Klebsiella and all the other stuff. Um, but, but let's be real. This, this is an issue, right? Have you ever stopped to think about this? Because uh, we do it so often. I mean, this is nothing that's foreign. We're going to see patients with ASB. So when ACOG came up with its clinical guidance in August of 2023, I'm like, all right, it, now it's going to be in there about the test of cure because it's always said, yes, you should get it. See, that's not controversial. ACOG says to get it. But then it, it, it gives you this weird left hook where it says, but there's no data for it. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> well, then why do it? That's absolutely the wording from ACOG's previous guidance. And it's the current guidance still uh, as of August 2023. And I'm going to read that to you exact, all right? Because no, it, they didn't make a stance one way or the other because the data is not there. So I just wanted to, to just before we go into that data and give you all the numbers of, of, of the percentages of the offending organisms, uh, I mean, you see this, right? I mean, this is a real thing. Uh, we always want to present things that are real world that you're going to, you know, get into um, kind of gray zones with. And the whole purpose of this is to think about why we're doing it. And then you make your decision. I'm just telling you what the guidelines say or don't say, as in this case. Uh, and we're going to do the same thing with the physical activity and the yoga poses because that's super interesting. And then kind of bring in the mile circuit into that. Um, but just because there's no data specifically doesn't mean that it shouldn't be done. I mean, can I get a witness? It, it, it should it should be okay as long as it's low risk and has some capacity for benefit. Wait, did I just say, can I get a witness? Do y'all know, for those of you who don't understand what that is, look, I, here's a little personal perspective. Uh, I, I have, I know a little bit of something about uh, being raised in a Pentecostal. Uh, 
And so when somebody says, can I get a witness? Uh, that is not a question. Uh, that is a that is a comment. That is a command, right? <laughs> so can I get a witness is, oh, I went old school right there. Oh my goodness, that just that just like came back from in the, the back of my recessed memories. Uh yeah, can you get a witness is 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 basically y'all know what I'm talking about, right? That means you're with me, you, you get what I'm putting down, you get the cards I'm holding. All right, I think I'm done with that. So all to say is this is not esoterical. Uh, and I'm curious. I mean, do you get urine culture test of cures after ASB or cystitis therapy? And if you do, fantastic. I do also. But we have to be we have to be evidence based and legit in in our understanding that there's there's no data for that, even though it sounds like super reasonable thing to do. So, um, and I'm again, I'm gonna read you that that guidance uh, as ACOGS states it right off the bat, and also from the Infectious Disease Society of America, who we've quoted many times on this channel before, the IDSA. First of all, about um, ASB. Remember that the likely offenders is always the, the chief runner is always E. coli. That's about 70% of the time. That's followed by Klebsiella, then Enrobacter, and then other gram positive organisms like GBS at about 10%. All right. And asymptomatic bacteria. Remember, this is on a patient that has no symptoms. If they have symptoms, it's not ASB, that is cystitis. I know, it's like, duh, I get that. I just have to say that because we're trying to be evidence-based, ironically, uh, and I've got to stick to the, the medical education goal here, okay? And remember, it's 10 to the 5th colony-forming units on midstream urine, and the traditional is on two consecutive voided samples, but nobody does that. Or if it's cath, or if they do have symptoms, which is when you're looking for now cystitis, it's 10 to the 2nd, all right? Now, we covered when to treat GBS bacteria uh, in past episodes. You can go back and listen to that. But remember that it is GBS in the urine at any concentration automatically. Do not pass go. That is, you get antibiotics intrapartum at any concentration. But you only treat for ASB if, as, it, as we've just discussed, it's over 100,000 colony-forming units uh, per ml, or if they're symptomatic, all right? So if it's less than that, you don't have to treat for ASB, um, but you do have to give them antibiotics intrapartum. That's out of the ACOG um, uh, bulletin on prevention of early-onset group E strep. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
oh, oh, now listen to this, because this is may flip your lid too, because it did for me um, when I read this in the August 2023 um, clinical guidance, because you're like, oh, you, it, it's messing with, it's rocking my world with stuff that I don't want to hear. But it's the truth. Okay, so how do you give patients instructions for their uh, midstream urine? You go, oh, here's your little cup, start peeing in the toilet and then collect in the middle. Uh, and before you do that, wipe really well, right? Here's your little your little cleanser and when wipe you know, correctly uh, from front to back. So just by the, by the urethra where your pee comes out um, so we can be nice and, and a clean sample. Yeah, there's no data for that. What? I mean, I know, I know, I'm sorry, and I'm not saying not to do it, because I like that approach. I'm saying that there's no evidence that wiping it a couple of times, uh, the urethra with that little uh, towelette thingy, is any better than not doing it. Let me read you the, the, the verbiage directly from August 2023 from the college, all right? Quote, a midstream urine culture is recommended for ASB screening, and it's talking about over, you know, urine dipsticks. Providing instructions in perineal cleansing, like a clean catch during the midstream collection, has not been shown to reduce the rate of vulvovaginal bacterial contamination of the urine. Both midstream and midstream clean catch specimens commonly have at least moderate levels of contamination in pregnant patients, as evidenced by epithelial cells on gram stain and mixed bacterial flora on culture. In one-third of pregnant patients, urine cultures by either collection methods show growth of skin flora at colony counts up to 10,000, that's 10 to the 4. So whether they do clean catch with the wipe or just midstream, you're going to get the same amount of contamination. Ugh. Now, maybe you don't Maybe you don't have them wipe. And so good for you. That's fine. I, I think it's, again, can't hurt, can only help. But if you take a look at the data here, probably not making a big difference at all. ACOG continues to say, quote, there is no evidence specifically addressing whether to repeat that sample that shows vulvovaginal bacterial contamination. Given the high rates of contaminated urine specimens, as well as increasing rates of culture contamination as the pregnancy advances, attempts to repeat the collection in hopes of avoiding contamination by skin flora may ultimately be futile, end quote. So that's the first thing that kind of rocked my world. So I'm like, surely my little clean catch, it's so much better than just peeing directly in there. And it probably isn't. Why? Because they're both midstream, guys. That's the catch. That midstream, that first void cleanses most of that urethra by the flow of urine anyway. Now, that's different than doing STI collection. Remember, that's not midstream. That's first catch. And I have a whole other episode on how to screen for UTIs, gonorrhea, chlamydia, or trick by urine. But there's, it's got a lot of issues there as well. You got to listen to that episode. And that is definitely not midstream because you're going to end up with more false negative. That's first catch. So whether you choose your ASB culture or your cystitis culture to be midstream by itself or midstream clean catch by wiping first, it's probably not making that much of a deal uh, of a difference. You see that? It sounds good to do it, but there's no evidence. There's no data. That's why I call this episode, again, no data, no problem. Because <laughs> uh, you keep doing what you do. Again, I'm just here to let you know what this current clinical guidance says. Uh, because, and again, this happened recently in, in our clinic. Um, not with how to collect it, but about the the urine culture after her ASB treatment, which we're about to get into now. Okay, let's move on for a little bit because uh, th this is why I'm I'm a little conflicted, and you should be too, as a physician scientist, 
as an evidence-based practitioner, here's the reality, okay? We know from all the data, this has been like 30 years, that 30% of women, that that's not my guess, I'm reading it straight from, from, the, from, the, from the Creog uh, manuscript here, up to 30% of women fail to clear asymptomatic bacteria after short course therapy. So repeat culture is recommended after a week after finishing antibiotics, end quote. Guys, that is Creog. And if you, if you don't remember, I've talked about Creog in the past. You're like, what the hell is Creog? It is a Council of Residency Education of OBGYN. Basically, Association of Professors of Gynecology and Obstetrics, APCO, um, makes the curriculum for residency and, you know, for, to make competent uh, residents before they graduate. Uh, and so they give the educational standards. So did y'all get that? Hey, 30% of women with ASB will still have it. You got to do a urine culture. Okay. So are you saying that that's against what ACOG says? No, not at all, because ACOG says to get a urine culture too. They just both say there's just no data to support that recommendation. <laughs> Do you get that? Is that wild or what? So it's 2024 now. And again, that's why I just, I'm so surprised by this, yet not surprised. And in a way, it's kind of funny that, uh, do we not know this? And the answer is No. Because APCO goes on to say, right after it made that statement to get a repeat culture, it states, quote, there is no data whether repeating a urine culture after completion of therapy improves maternal or neonatal outcomes, end quote. So, yeah, that's that. Now, that's APCO. Let me read you straight from the ACOG uh, clinical guidance about this test of cure and whether that's helpful or not. So here it is. This is, again, this is now ACOG, quote, Treatment should be started once bacteria is confirmed and then altered if antibiotic sensitivities show that the isolated bacteria are not sensitive to what you gave. All right, that makes sense. They go on to say, given that these infections are, by definition, asymptomatic, a urine culture often is performed after completion of treatment to assess the response. Yes, we just said that. Thank you. And then here's the left hook. However, there are no studies available to review that assess or recommend whether a test of cure or repeat screening is indicated after treatment, end quote. No data, no problem. I mean, again, guys, I just want us all to think um, about stuff that we do all the time. It sounds evidence-based, and it actually isn't. And so I just thought it, it, in a way to be how ironic that is and in a way to be complete, when letting you know that this new clinical guidance came out in August uh, and to show you how real world this is, that, yeah, I'm all for getting a, a urine culture for test of cure. I think it's valid. But I also have to be honest with myself that there's no evidence that that technically is going to make the patient any better. Just to put the final nail in this coffin. Ooh, that's a terrible analogy. But anyway, make the last stance here. Let me tell you what the IDSA, the Infectious Disease Society, what they say in their guidance from 2019 regarding this. All right. Now, they're the Infectious Disease Society of America. You're, you're, I mean, they're going to say, right? I mean, it's IDSA. That's all they do is infectious disease. Surely they're going to be in favor of a test of cure. Nope, they are not. No, God. No, God, please, no. Oh, I really did want them to be in favor of test of cure urine, but they're not because not because it doesn't work, but because there's no data. See, guys, that's very different. OK, there hasn't been this study that shows that it's effective, but it's reasonable, isn't it? 
So again, the IDSA 2019 guidance states, quote, there is no direct evidence evaluating the benefit of repeat screening following an initial episode of asymptomatic bacteria, and it is not known whether retreatment of recurrent or persistent bacteria improves outcome, end quote. That's a tough pill to swallow, but there it is. Okay, I think we are done with that scenario, all right? So what is the take-home message there? Um, treat ASB. Treat it. Just You, you got to at least do that. Everybody agrees that. What is controversial is whether or not to do a repeat culture to make sure that's gone. Um, and let me be completely transparent. I did not train with that because there is no data. And so I left the institution years ago where, um, I mean, if there wasn't anything, we just didn't do it because there was no data, even though it sounded good. Uh, and then as I just became more conservative in practice, I'm like, wow, what is the harm of doing that? And, and the truth is, it is very controversial with with great leaders in MFM and in, in ACOG going, I do, and then the equal amount saying, I do not. So I leave it to you to decide whether you do a test of cure after cystitis or ASB in pregnancy, even though there's no data. Remember, no data doesn't mean not to do it. It just means there hasn't been the studies to confirm it. Low risk, potentially high yield, and we'll just leave it at that. All right, for our next scenario, we're going to get into do any kind of specific exercises or exercises in general. Does that help prevent induction of labor and or help with stalled labor? It's a tricky one, and we're going to read you the guidance from ACOG's recent um, new guidance from uh, the management of first and second stage of labor, and then give you some uh, other data out there that confuses the picture. Here we go. ACOG, as you know, we also recently covered this, released their clinical practice guideline number eight this month in January 2024 on the first and second stage labor management. Uh, we got to go back. It's just it can't be what, maybe two weeks ago that we did this, maybe sooner. Um, but we highlighted this and contrasted this to the previous uh, guidance, which was obstetrical care consensus number one. OK, that's now been taken down and replaced by this clinical practice guideline number eight. But in this, there is a section here on adjuvant care, and this is specifically talking about intrapartum. All right. Now, as we're going to get into certain kind of exercises, it's not just exercises intrapartum. It's exercises done late in pregnancy to help with the onset of labor, but it equally applies to exercises being done uh, early on in labor as long as the patient is ambulatory and does not have an epidural, all right? So to be very clear, we're going to talk about something like the Miles Circuit that's very popular in social media, uh, very uh, uh, comfortable in the midwife realm, uh, still a little foreign to some traditional mainstream OBGYN physicians specifically because we don't get the kind of training, but there's a lot of lessons to be learned from midwifery. We have a whole other episode on that. Go into the archive and look at the, the title episode is Lessons Learned from Midwifery which has to do with positional changes. Now, th there's two things here regarding positional changes intrapartum. We're going to talk about antepartum prenatally here in a minute. But intrapartum, uh, the easiest answer is, hey, if the patient can do it safely and there's no restriction to her ambulating um, and she doesn't have an epidural in place that's going to make it risky, uh, knock yourself out. If it, labor changes are great for pain control, now, whether they help to bring the baby down intrapartum or not, that's less certain, 
okay? Because once again, remember I said, because there's no data, that doesn't mean that it's a problem because some of those uh, studies are very hard to do or what's been done has been of low quality evidence, all right? And I'm gonna explain that in a minute. But in ACOG's uh, uh, consensus guideline uh, number eight from this month, January uh, 2024, there is this section here on, on adjuvant care. Remember, specifically talking about intrapartum care. And here's what it states about these things. Quote, multiple non-pharmacological supportive care measures have been suggested to have the potential to assist labor progression during labor dystocia. These include, but are not limited to, continuous emotional support. Let me stop there. Yes, that's a yes. That's where doulas come in. That's a big yes. There's no problem with that. They go on to say peanut ball. Again, yes, I'm a big fan of that. Hydration, absolutely a fan of that. Perineal massage, great. Water immersion, yes. And ACOG says water immersion is fine. Yes, it does. It says not to do the actual delivery in water. I think that's where we kind of separate from uh, the American uh, College of Nurse Midwifery, um, where we draw the line. Just because there's some issues there, uh, and I have to be in line with my college, I think water immersion is fantastic in the first stage of labor, but not for the second stage, even though there is some data and people who love water birth, but ACOG does not support that as of right now. Okay. It says that uh, birth should occur on land. Pain control can happen in water. Birth should con- birth should can happen uh, should happen dry. That's the current ACOG stance. They go on to say acupuncture, ambulation, and position changes. There it is. And ACOG makes a statement. There is considerable heterogeneity in the type and timing of interventions that can make them a challenge to study in a systematic fashion. End quote. So that's the catch. Here is can certain exercises help intrapartum? Maybe, but the data is not great. But again, no data, no problem. If the patient desires it, it does make, once again, just like checking the urine culture, a lot of sense. I mean, the lying on your back and laboring is absolutely nonsensical. It doesn't make any sense at all because putting the patient on their side with a leg raised or a knee chest, these different positions absolutely helps that baby navigate down and ideally get in the appropriate orientation, meaning LOA. All right. Now, ACOG does touch on position changes and ambulation uh, in the clinical guidance. So let me read that directly from there, uh, from the wording, so I I don't misspeak. And then we'll get into a little bit more about what Mills Circuit is, either early in labor in the latent phase or ideally antepartum to help the baby come down. And then I'm going to give you data that says that from 2022 that shows, hey, exercise towards the last weeks of pregnancy actually prevented an induction. Why? Probably because it helps the baby come down, puts pressure onto the cervix, uh, maybe helps with a little bit of, of cervical ripening. And that's where you get things like crib walking and everything else. Uh, did I say crib walking? Sorry, curb walking. <laughs> crib walk. You know what the crib walk is? I did this in that episode too. That's the sea walk, man. You know what that is? That's a little, that's being gangsta. Come on. You don't know what the sea walk is? Anyway, we're not definitely doing that. But curb walking is where they walk one foot on the curb, one on the pavement. You got to be careful, though, because it's a it's very prone to falls or ankle sprains. So you should be done with a spotter, like if you're at the gym. OK, um, again, can it hurt? Um, no, not really. Can it help? Possibly. And that's why I'm all for these things. I believe in position changes in repartum. I know that the data isn't great. But as the title suggests, no data, no problem.
ACOG says in the clinical guidance from this month, quote, observational changes of maternal position during labor have found that patients spontaneously assume many different positions during labor. Yeah, that goes without saying. They go on to say, quote, a meta-analysis compared upright positioning, including sitting, standing, and kneeling, ambulation, or both with recumbent, lateral, or supine positions during the first stage of labor, and found that upright positions shortened the duration of first stage of labor by about an hour and 22 minutes. There you go. So lying on your back to labor is just not physiologic. Sit them up if they want and or use something like that peanut ball. I think it's helpful. They go on to say women in upright positions also were less likely to undergo cesarean delivery. Why? Probably because you allow that baby to rotate correctly, follow the natural curvature of the pelvis and then go into LOA position. However, here's the left hook again. Quote, the 2020 AHRQ review. That's the Agency for Healthcare Quality and Research. Okay. Agency for Healthcare Quality. Uh, uh, research and quality, AHRQ, found no difference in duration of labor or cesarean delivery for patients using different position interventions, although those in kneeling positions were more likely than those in sitting positions to have reduced trauma to the pelvic floor, end quote. So, ACOG says, look, frequent position changes. Hey, if she wants to do it, and if if it's going to give her pain control, absolutely. But is the data strong here that this is going to result uh, in, in success over some other intervention? It's very gray. But they do state regarding ambulation, ambulation has been associated with a shorter duration of labor in the AHRQ 2020 systematic review, although the strength of the evidence was low. All right, so if you're wondering where's my position on this, I'm all for it if the patient wants it. I think laboring on your back is very um, uh, very difficult. I mean, you, you, who wants to push on their back? I mean, nobody poops on their back. You have to poop kind of squatting and more physiologic, and it just allows natural curvature of, uh, uh, of the pelvis. And it's the same thing. Trying to push a, a, a little bowling ball through that opening lying down is just tough. Well, that's intrapartum. But doing activities and being physically active, specifically certain kinds of yoga poses in the late weeks of pregnancy, again, can't hurt and it can only help. And there is actually data for that. First of all, there has been an RCT that actually came out just February of 2022 out of the journal Maternal Fetal Neonatal Medicine, where randomized uh, patients to routine activities or active walking towards the last weeks of pregnancy three times a week, okay, three times a week for 30 minutes and found that those that actually were committed to the walking uh, cohort actually ended up leading less labor induction. Those who walked uh, three times a week, at least 30 minutes in the last weeks of pregnancy, uh, had 17.5% labor induction compared to 33% labor induction uh, for those who had routine activity without that kind of uh, walking. Now, why is that? Probably because, once again, that walking helps the baby go into the natural pelvis uh, and showed benefit there. So these authors concluded, quote, for low-risk women at term, walking for 30 minutes three times a week at 4 kilometers per hour from 38 weeks onwards is a safe method and potentially enhances spontaneous onset of labor and reduces operative vaginal delivery rates. End quote. Again, it's all about having the baby fit in into the pelvis. Uh, the title of this RCT was Physical Exercise at Term for Enhancing the Spontaneous Onset of Labor, a Randomized Clinical Trial. 
Now, I do have to say it here. What is not controversial is the benefits of physical activity in pregnancy. ACOG has always been on that stance and SMFM to get up and move um, exactly as, as was described in that RCT. Uh, walking is great. Uh, it's not for everybody. I get that. But physical activity in general is the way to go. That it prepares the patient for labor. And so that's not controversial. The, the part about the no data part um, isn't so much about physical activity as it is specifically regarding certain position uh, changes in anticipation of labor, like yoga things, okay? So what we just covered is physical activity in general and walking. Now let's get into our next portion, which I wanted to focus on, which is the, the yoga thing uh, and the miles circuit. Before we leave this issue of walking, um, I wanted to give you the reference of where we actually go more into detail on this in a previous episode, and that was on July the 14th of 2023, all right? So you can go into the archive, July the 14th, 2023, where I go into much more depth specifically regarding things like curb walking um, and just walking in general. So to be just to be clear, um, yes, physical activity tends to have a benefit intrapartum, shorter labors, better pain control, a better breathing breathing techniques. It's fantastic. Does it actually bring on labor? That's pretty controversial. Likely no, because labor initiation is super complex and biochemical. Although it would make sense, right? If the baby's head is well applied into the cervix, it would be a kind of natural ripening. But the data there is super unclear. Okay. But nonetheless, remember, no data, no problem. So I think we're done with that. You can go back to July 14 for more info. Let's keep moving. Uh, No pun intended. Now, if walking is not your patient's thing, I get that. Uh, but there is a benefit to sitting in your living room and during certain, doing certain kinds of stretches and yoga poses. I mean, child's pose, uh, kind of deep squatting. Guys, that's a thing. There was actually a systematic review and meta-analysis that was published in March 2022 um, that actually showed that position changes and yoga style poses can actually help with childbirth. This was published in BMC and the title, as you would expect, is The Characteristics and Efficacy of Pregnancy Yoga Interventions, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. Short of it is, uh, the evidence did show some positive effects of pregnancy yoga on both anxiety and depression, and it also helped with duration of labor. Right, so so there it is. It's somehow it just outside of the the benefit of just loosening up your joints and being good for you, your psyche. Uh, these women did have shorter labors, so there is some evidence there that that specific positioning, not just walking, but certain positions as the baby gets ready for birth, um, certain positions taken can actually help with that labor process. I do direct some of the patients who ask about this to a website from. Uh, my old institution. So I trust them. I I know this data. I know these people. Uh, But UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas has a really nice, not in the Department of OB, but out of the Department of Physical Therapy, they have a real nice web page that uh, is under their med blog section about techniques and yoga poses to help prepare for for delivery. Now, it's not necessarily the miles circuit um, as a set, you know, it's a, 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 a tri-pronged approach is the mile circuit. I'll tell you about that in a minute. Uh, again, very uh, midwife friendly, but oddly enough, it's a lot of the same activities and stretches and yoga poses uh, to try to get the baby down into 
the pelvic uh, outlet. So, yeah, I mean, and I trust UT Southwestern. I've told patients, hey, here's this little website. You can go look that up. Uh, and, and they make the stance that that the Association of Physical Therapists has had uh, a, a guidance for uh, for prenatal yoga and and for stretches for many, many years. And I understand, yes, yes, I get it. Physical therapy is not yoga at all, but some physical therapy techniques employ yoga-like stretches. Now, I have to be I have to be very clear here. Yoga does have some evidence that it's helpful prenatally and even some mild yoga stretches in early labor to help with baby's positioning. That's how it's linked to what we're about to get into, which is the miles circuit. But even that yoga data is is of moderate to low quality. Quality, which is why, you know, ACOG's like, hey, yoga, knock yourself out as long as it doesn't hurt. Um, it can only help if you do it right. Um, but but to say absolutely it's going to prevent induction, we just can't do that because there's so many factors involved. So most of the good quality evidence goes to just physical activity, period, then goes to these physical therapy slash yoga style poses. And then we're going to talk about the one that has... Um, all anecdotal data, but no scientific data, which is the mild circuit. And remember, no data, no problem. But we're going to get to that in a minute. I love how these physical therapists start this website. Um, it says, you want to run a marathon without training for it? Well, childbirth should be the same way. Pregnancy, labor, and delivery is just as taxing or more on the body. And then they go on to say on this uh, website, the American Physical Therapy Association has published a section on women's health for nearly 40 years. Well, there it is. So there is some benefit here. And they go through a couple of the yoga poses, including like the child's pose and the deep squat uh, and the quadrupled cat or cow. That seems interesting. Um, you got to be flexible to do some of this. Now, again, patients should never be encouraged to hurt themselves or overdo it. But this makes the point that doing these yoga style poses can help that baby get in proper position. Uh, and, and let me be very clear. I am not, um, I do not consider myself to be alternative. I consider myself to be very mainstream. But once again, it can't hurt and it can only help. And just because there's no data, because these trials have been are very difficult to do and to control, hence why they're very heterogeneous in their results. Um, it can only help, all right? The only way it can hurt is if a patient does it wrong uh, without proper guidance or at least reading uh, the instructions and doesn't have somebody um, there for, for physical support. So uh, I am a believer in this. I think that there is some value to it, even things like the Miles Circuit, which does not have anything in PubMed. It does not have anything in Google Scholar. Uh, but it seems to make sense to me. I, I think it's valid. But if you're looking for hard data that it works, it is not there. We just don't have those trials. But the mile circuit, which, again, is very popular in social media, uh, I, I get it. It's basically a, a set of three different activities. Each one is like 30 minutes, so it could take like an hour and a half. Uh, and this is meant to do ideally before labor, although during labor it may have a role as well. Okay, um, but, but this specific kind of circuit, which is going through uh, one pose for 30 minutes and then going to a separate activity for the second 30 and uh, a, a third position for the final 30 minutes, it is meant to help uh, relax the pelvis and ideally move that baby down. 
Okay. Now I'm I'm very realistic. I, I'm not saying that if your baby's breech and you do these magically, the baby's going to flip. I don't think so, but it may. Um, but I'm still a fan. And me be very clear. I'm not saying that external cephalic version things like that don't have a place. And this isn't even for this. This is for the cephalic baby trying to uh, uh, arrange uh, better descent into the pelvis. Now, so uh, I think saying things like, oh, this can help flip a baby, that's that's pushing it to the limit a little bit. Uh, and I'm not saying that. I think there's a place for external cephalic version in line with my college. I'm saying that as a way to prepare for childbirth, things like the mild circuit uh, is something that can be tried. All right, everyone, as we start to wrap this up, just very quickly, the three components of miles is number one is the open knee chest position uh, that requires a partner. And again, it takes 30 minutes. The second is um, line uh, on the side with a leg elevated. Um, so almost like an exaggerated Sims position. It seems to be very helpful to get the baby in position. That can be done intrapartum as well, almost like with the um, peanut ball. And then the third is a part of that curb walking, that active and asymmetric uh, kind of lifting your leg up. Uh, and then almost like in a little squat or uh, a walking activity, you can also go down the stairs, kind of, you know, one leg up at a time uh, to, to try to make the baby move. Is there hard data that this works? No. Uh, that's why we said no data, but no problem. If the patient is well enough to try it and has somebody there to make sure that she is safe, then I think give it a shot. All right, podcast family, we have highlighted two main things here that really don't have data, but they sound reasonable enough to do. Getting a test of cure after ASB treatment or of cystitis in pregnancy, no data for that. Seems reasonable to me. Uh, and then physical activity, yoga poses, and miles circuit as you prepare for labor. Um, again, tricky data, not great quality, um, but seems like it can help to me. So I just thought this was an interesting topic as we kind of approach things that sound reasonable. And just because they don't have data, guys doesn't mean it doesn't work. It means that the studies have not been done. That's very different than having studies and it does not work. So I'm not saying that these are wrong to do. I'm saying that the data there is either not there or it's very, very heterogeneous, but always good to be conservative. And if it can't hurt and it can only help, definitely something to consider putting into practice. All right, podcast family, that brings us to a wrap. As always, we're thankful for you. We're glad you're part of our podcast community. We'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.